0: We're going to conclude a series we started six weeks ago called The Inside Scoop. We all like The Inside Scoop. We like the story behind the story. We like the juicy stuff. Well, through the use of parables, Jesus gives us The Inside Scoop about the secrets of the kingdom of God. See, Jesus uh, went to using parables because although thousands of people were following him around, The vast majority of them were just following him because he was the new guy in town. There was a lot of excitement. He was healing people, doing miracles. They all wanted to see it. But the people didn't have a heart to change their relationship with God, to really grow closer to God, to become more dedicated to the service of God. So Jesus knew that if he went to using parables, and if if this is the first time you've been to the series, a parable is, is a simple story about life, about some event in life that Jesus used to illustrate and teach a spiritual and eternal truth, in this particular case, about the kingdom of God. Jesus knew that the people were just looking for the hype. They would check out and walk away. But the people who really had a heart for God, they would stay until they understood what these parables were all about. So Jesus goes through a lot of parables. We looked at the parable of the soil and the seed. And the inside scoop on this one was that the vast majority of humanity will not receive the message of God. The vast majority of humanity will reject it, either because they just won't believe it as a bunch of nonsense, or they'll get so busy with living this life that they'll not make time for God, or for whatever reason, the vast majority of people throughout all of history will not receive the word of God. And Jesus immediately goes into a parable about wheat and weeds. See, at this time, the Jewish people think just because they're Jewish, that if there's eternal life in heaven, they're automatically in because they're the seed of Abraham, So no matter what, Jesus says, not so. In this parable, Jesus says that in the end times, God is gonna send his angels, and the angels are gonna separate the wheat, people who really have a heart for God and love God and wanna serve God, from the weeds, people who, although they were intermixed all during life with the wheat, they never responded to God, and they'll be separated. One will go into the eternal kingdom, won't go into everlasting suffering. And so the inside scoop was, Don't listen to anyone who tells you there's not a day of judgment coming. There is a day coming when God is going to bring justice to this world. And therefore, we better not get too cozy with sin. Then we looked at the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast, two of my favorite ones. And the inside scoop was this, that the kingdom of God was going to start very small, like a mustard seed. The smallest of all the seeds native to Palestine, native to the Middle East. It was going to start really small. Jesus was a mustard seed. He was the son of a carpenter, and his mother had a dubious uh, reputation in many circles of society. The disciples, they were all mustard seeds, these little insignificant social outcasts, but with that, along with other people who would come to faith in Jesus like us, like me, like you, we're mustard seeds. A lot of people don't think we're very much, but Jesus, Jesus said that's exactly the secret of the kingdom of God. It's going to start small with all these insignificant little mustard seeds that I'm going to use my divine power to spread all over the world. And when they're planted, they're going to grow, and the kingdom of God's going to come, and nothing's going to stop it. Nothing. Then we talked about the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. And this one's pretty simple. Basically, Jesus was saying this in this parable, that if we could somehow, if we could just somehow within us come to just a small understanding of the life that God is preparing for us to come. We would sell everything we had. We would go all in with our time, with our resources, with our energy, with our calendar, with our money. We would trade it all to maximize our eternal rewards and experience. That's what a treasure the life to come is. Scripture says, "I has not seen, Neither has ear heard, nor has entered into the imagination of the heart the things God's preparing for those who love him. We kind of live this life so often indifferent to God. Or, or maybe God's a part of our life, but that's all he is. He's a part of our life. And Jesus in these parables saying, if you really got it, if you really understood how much there is to gain and how much there is to lose, you would sell everything you had, and you would grasp this one reality, this truth. You would live every bit of your life for the coming kingdom of God. Last week, we looked at the parable of the workers in the vineyard. There's a lot of lessons from it, and I don't have time to review them all. But one that I walk away from this this parable is this, that the God that we have sung about today in worship is the most gracious, generous being in all the universe. He, He just loves no matter, this parable taught that no matter at what time our heart becomes tender to Jesus Christ and receive him as our Savior in our life, whether like me at a very young age, nine years old, I trust that Jesus is my Savior, or people on their deathbed, that God is so generous, he is so loving, that he will give to each one of those the same eternal experience as far as entering into the kingdom of God. Now, rewards are a different thing, but he will give us The promise of eternal life. And God perseveres. And he has persevered all these years since Jesus came back from the grave. And Jesus hasn't returned because God day after day after day is giving one more opportunity to one more man, one more woman to trust Jesus Christ as his or her savior and receive the eternal gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Now, today, in the last parable we're going to look at, it's another parable for those who will have ears to hear. See, some today will leave, again, moved by Jesus' teaching, and some will just go because we've checked the box off, we've been to church, we've been to Mass, we're good for the week. See, but Jesus has a secret. He wants to share something important with everyone here today who will have ears to hear. Today, we're going to conclude with the parable of the wedding banquet. Now, Jesus uses three parables here, but we're going to look at the last one, the the parable of the wedding banquet. It's Wednesday. Let me set the historical background. It's Wednesday of the last week of Jesus's life and ministry. The next day, Jesus is going to celebrate the Passover in the upper room with his disciples after singing a hymn. They're going to go into the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to pray while they sleep. Judas is going to come with the guards of Caiaphas, the chief priests of Israel. They're going to arrest Jesus. Judas is going to betray him with a kiss. They're going to interrogate Jesus all night. They're going to beat him. They're going to punch him. They're going to pull the beard out of his face. They're going to look for some reason to bring a charge that is worthy of death to him. Well, they don't succeed as we know the story. But on Friday, they take him to Pilate. And even though Pilate doesn't find any wrong with him, The religious leaders stir stir the crowd up to scream to crucify Jesus and ultimately after Jesus is flogged and scourged, he's crucified. So this is the week, just days before this. The previous Saturday, Jesus had come into the, the area of Jerusalem. Scripture suggests in other gospels that he was staying with the two sisters, Martha and Mary, and their brother, Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead after three days in the tomb. Typology and and, and forward looking to his own resurrection after three days. So he's staying with them, and he gets in the area on Saturday. On Sunday, Jesus takes time to reach out and to, to interact and teach with a multitude of pilgrims, people who are coming from distant lands to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. They've heard about this Jesus, but they live too far away to have interacted with them. So, but now that they're coming to Jerusalem, now that they're in the area, they want to see this amazing teacher they've been hearing about, this miracle worker. And so Sunday, Jesus takes time to meet with them and to teach them. On Monday, Jesus enters Jerusalem, the East Gate. The day that we celebrate today in Christianity called Palm Sunday. It's actually Palm Monday is more historically accurate. On Monday, he comes in the east gate of Jerusalem. And you know the story how people are cutting down palm branches and they're laying them in his path as he rides in on a donkey. And they're even taking off their their coats and they're laying them in the path. And they're screaming and waving palm branches and, and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he gets this triumphal ticket tape parade into the city of Jerusalem. See, the people's expectation was that he was Messiah, and he was coming into Jerusalem to attack and overthrow the Roman occupiers, because that's who they believed Messiah was going to be. He was going to be a conquering general, a conquering redeemer for Israel, and so they were excited. They thought to themselves, this makes perfect sense, that it would happen now, it's We're celebrating Passover, God's miraculous deliverance of the Israelites from Egyptian captivity for 400 years. This is it. It's going to happen. Now's the time. They're screaming. They're excited that Jesus was going to be the Messiah that would catapult Israel to international superpower, to be the, the dominant nation of the entire world. But he doesn't do it. Monday comes and goes, and it doesn't happen. The next day on Tuesday, Jesus comes back to the temple area. But instead of attacking the Romans, he attacks the religious leaders. And he goes into the temple, and he begins to turn over the tables of the money changers, people there selling the sacrifices and selling souvenirs and stuff that are in the temple of God. And he begins to cleanse the temple, the house of prayer, that these people had made into a den of robbers. And he causes quite a commotion, as you might believe and you might suspect. But now it's Wednesday. And Jesus is back in the temple. And he's once again teaching the people about the coming of the eternal kingdom of God. He's calling men and women to faith in him as not a conquering Messiah, but a saving Messiah. And all the religious leaders who are gathered with the thousands of people who are in the city to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the religious leaders feel very, very threatened. In fact, it says in Matthew 21, 23, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They ask, and who gave you this authority? See, they come up to Jesus and they say, who are you to be doing these things, coming into this temple and disrupting things and turning over tables and, and making a mockery of everything we're trying to do? Who are you? By what authority are you doing this? What are your credentials? Who are you? Who do you think you are? See, they begin to challenge him. And Jesus responds to them by shotgunning three parables. And they're all parables of judgment. We're going to focus this morning on the third of those parables. Again, the parable of the wedding banquet. So after Jesus shares two parables, he goes into the third one. And in Matthew 22, verse 1, Jesus speaks this third parable. It says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Now, right away, this would catch the attention of the people because just imagine a royal wedding. I mean, think about it. We got all excited when Prince William and Kate got married and we're not even English. In fact, I had a couple after the first service stopped me and they said, we're visiting from England. It's our first time here. And we cracked up when you started talking about the royal wedding. Yeah, everyone was crazy about the royal wedding. Well, immediately the people would have got excited about this. Here was a royal wedding. A king was throwing a banquet. Now remember, in this day, weddings weren't like they are today. We have a wedding day and a reception and all that. For the common person, a wedding celebration went on for a week. Imagine that, dads. What a checkbook that must have cost, huh? A week, but for a king, for royalty, that same wedding celebration might go from four to six weeks long, and it would be an event like no other event. So the people are going, wow, man, they're just envisioning this royal wedding. But Jesus now shocks them. He goes on to say in Matthew 22, 3, he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Now, now first of all, it suggests that they had already been invited. And this was the protocol of a royal wedding in that day, that an invitation would have gone out long before the actual wedding so that people could put it on their calendars, they could make arrangements to come. And so the invitation had already been given. People received their invitation. Don't you know, they probably were so excited about receiving that invitation. It had been like we would, hey, did you get invited? Oh, I'm so sorry. You didn't get invited. I'll take pictures. So the invitations had gone out. And now, the king sends the servants back out to say, it's time. The wedding is now. Come to the wedding banquet now. But they refuse to come. These people that Jesus is saying in this parable, they, they would have been going, they said, what? They refused to come? They would have been beside themselves in anxiety about this situation but then Jesus goes on to say in verse 4 of Matthew 22, then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I prepared my dinner. My ox and fatted calf have been butchered and everything is ready. Come on to the banquet. They would have go, he what? What king is this? A king who would humble himself in such a way that once he'd been refused by, by his subjects, that he would send out yet another invitation he would be that generous, that loving, that understanding. And so he sends his servants out again in his story. And the people are going, wow, man, I'd love to be with this king. And he tells him, he says, my oxen have been prepared and butchered. The fatted calf. Now, the fatted calf in the culture of the day was an animal that was reserved for only the most, the most dramatic celebrations. Remember in the story of the prodigal son. When the son came back after leaving the father, the father had the fatted calf killed. And they had a celebration. In fact, the other brother was so jealous about it that he wouldn't come to the celebration. So the king says, "My fat calf, the king's fat calf, the one that I hold for the most important celebration. I've killed the fat calf. Everything's ready to go. The dinner's here. Come on, come now, come once everyone." And people would have been really thinking, "Wow, this is some king." But in verse five, Jesus goes on the story to say, "But they paid no attention." And they went off. One went off to his field, another went off to his business. These people would have been horrified. They would have gone, what? One's a farmer and he just says, ah, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to be bothered with it. I'm, I'm going to, my field, I need to tend to my field. Another says, ah, I've got stuff to sell, I've got to keep my shop open. I can't afford to close my shop for no wedding, not for, and the people would have been beside themselves with that kind of an insult given to a king and to have missed a wedding of that magnitude. But then Jesus goes on to say in verse six, the rest of them that didn't go to their field or didn't go back to their businesses actually seized the servants the king had sent to re-invite them now for the third time to the royal wedding. Some of them mistreated the servants and some even killed the servants. Oh, the people listening to this story Now they'd be saying, oh, this is a crazy story. This could never, ever possibly happen. Jesus was not just telling a story, remember. Jesus is revealing yet another secret about the coming kingdom of God. In Luke, a parallel gospel, chapter 11, Beginning in verse 37, Jesus says this to the religious leaders. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets. And it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. You celebrate what they did. See, Jesus is speaking specifically to the religious leaders. He's saying, you know what? God has over and over again sent you prophets. He sent his servants out. And your forefathers mistreated them. Your forefathers killed them. And you celebrate the fact that they did that. You built their tombs. You continue to offend the king, the eternal king. Verse 50 says, therefore this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that have been shed since the beginning of the world. Now, what you've got to understand is with these words and with this parable, a significant transition that impacts every one of us sitting here today is occurring. God is making an enormous change in his relationship with humanity Jesus continues the story and says in verse 7 the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. The people would have fully supported that idea. They would have said, Yeah, and they would have deserved it. Who who would have guessed any other ending to this story than that, than the king sending his army and destroying those people that had mistreated his servants, who had killed his servants? But see, Jesus, in actuality, and Jesus in this place was actually giving a prophecy of what was about to happen in Israel. He said, listen, God's holding this generation responsible for the continual rejection of God's invitation to his kingdom of the Jewish people. That's what he's saying. They would realize the full impact of Jesus' word in the year 70 A.D., When the Roman general Titus lays siege to the city of Jerusalem, the siege was so devastating and lasts so long that history records that the Jewish people began to resort to cannibalism, even the cannibalism of their own children to survive the siege. Ultimately, Titus and the Roman soldiers were able to breach the city's walls and gates and when they came into the city, there was a slaughter that was unequaled in history. Josephus, the Jewish historian, who was a turncoat and a supporter of, of the Romans, later wrote that the Romans killed and slaughtered 1,100,000 Jews in that city. And there was no respect of whether they were civilian or soldier. There was no respect whether they were man, woman, boy, girl, or baby. They murdered 1,100,000 people in in Jerusalem, and they threw their bodies over the walls of the city to rot and decay. Then he said to his servants, verse 8, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not come. So I burned their city. Now, why didn't they deserve it? Were they not good enough? Maybe their morals weren't high enough. And that's why they didn't deserve to come. Maybe they weren't ethical enough. Maybe they just didn't have enough good enough deeds to be worthy of coming to such a place. Is that why they were rejected? No, none of those reasons. They didn't deserve to come, don't miss this, because they wouldn't accept the king's invitation. That's it. They would have made themselves deserving if they had only accepted the king's invitation. It wasn't about their behavior. It was about their refusal to accept the gracious generosity of the king. This was the history of Israel. The Jewish Old Testament prophet Amos, in his Old Testament manuscript, says this in Amos chapter 3, verse 2. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. He's speaking to Israel. And he's speaking the words of God, the thoughts of God to the people of Israel. And the Old Testament says, you know what? Out of every person, out of every civilization, out of every tongue, every language, every group of people on planet Earth, I chose you to be my people. You, over everybody. I invited you. Paul, later in Romans... Chapter 10, verse 21, reflecting back on Israel, says this. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, God says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. He said, here's the history of Israel. Back from Genesis chapter 12, when God gave Abraham the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that God was going to bless him above all the peoples of the earth, and he was going to create a nation of them that would be a blessing to all the other nations on planet earth. He said, but continually our relationship has been characterized by your rebelliousness, by your disobedience, and by your obstinance. You just wouldn't listen. No matter how many times I intervened, no matter how many times I saved you, no matter how many times you fell into terrible, terrible, life-threatening times, and I was there for you over and over again. No matter how many prophets I sent you, you either mistreated them or you killed them. Those I invited didn't deserve to come. Jesus was specifically speaking to the religious leaders in this parable, and they knew it. Matthew 21 45, 46. Well, Jesus is rattling off these three judgment parables said, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. In fact, they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. They knew that he was talking to them and his judgments were against them. And they wanted so badly to arrest him, to silence him. But the people, there were still some who were hoping that he was that Messiah, he was that prophet who was gonna redeem Israel. So they didn't dare raise up against him. But they knew what he was talking about. So Jesus, in the parable, goes on to say, in Matthew 22, verses nine and 10, go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now, Jesus is describing a major transition in God's relationship with humanity. Up to this point, going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to the call of Abraham, to the establishment of the Jewish nation, God made them his chosen people. But because they made themselves undeserving of his invitation to be his people by which he would bless all the other nations of the earth, He withdrew temporarily because in the end, God's relationship with Israel will be restored. That's a whole other topic for a different day. Matthew 21, 43, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. See, God didn't call Israel to be his chosen nation just because he happened to like them more than any other people on planet Earth. He chose them for a purpose. He said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you because you are going to be my representative to the world. You are gonna live such an exceptional lifestyle and you're gonna serve me in such an exceptional way that it will attract the other nations, the pagan nations to me through your allegiance to me and through my blessing of you and you're gonna draw them to me, and they didn't do that. Instead, they began to assume an air of superiority to all the other people of the earth, and they missed their purpose. When God was reinforcing his call to them as a people, in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, part of the Torah, chapter seven, verse six says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God, speaking to Israel, the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Again, he's reaffirming the fact that he chose them. Now compare that now to what the apostle Peter, one of the original 12 disciples, says after the resurrection of Jesus in his New Testament letter about the change that has occurred. Remember, Jesus said, it's taken away from you and it's given to another people who will produce its fruit. That people are those people who are Christ's followers, who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And it says in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen people. How many of you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? He's talking to you right now. He's talking to you. He says, you now are the chosen people. A royal priesthood. You've got a purpose, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In other words, Jesus says this, it's your turn now. The blessing I originally gave to Israel I now give to you because they made themselves undeserving. Why? Because they didn't accept my invitation to be the people that I called them to be. And he's saying, so it's your turn. I'm giving you and 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 you and, you, and me. I'm extending the invitation to be my people that you might do what I called Israel to do, that you might live such an exemplary lifestyle, a lifestyle of purity, a lifestyle of holiness that the other people on planet earth will say, what have you got? I want what you got. And we can call them to the glorious saving of Jesus Christ. And it's not based on whether they're good or bad. It's just based on us extending the invitation and them accepting or rejecting that invitation. Jesus ends this parable, though, was a very dramatic scene. Matthew twenty two, eleven says, But when the king came in to see the guests, now all the people had come, servants that went out, now they brought in the Gentile people, both the good and the bad. They're all the wedding hall was filled. And said when the king came in, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. See, in the midst of this celebration the king comes in, and he notices somebody, and he's not in wedding clothes. And there's all kinds of, of biblical and theological discussion about what the wedding clothes are. But the main emphasis is that when confronted, the man was speechless. He had no excuse for why he didn't have the wedding clothes on. It wasn't like you said, oh, I was working and I got lost of time and I just, I didn't want to offend you, king, so I came to the banquet just dressed the way I was, or, or I, maybe I was too poor to be able to afford. Now, now some say that, that, that in the parable, Jesus is suggesting that the king gave them the clothes, and I think that's probably the reason, but he didn't have the clothes. He didn't deserve to be there because he wasn't there under the right circumstances. In Matthew 7, verse 22 to 23, Jesus had previously said this. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, what Jesus was saying in this parable, what Jesus said then, and what Jesus says now, is not everybody who thinks they're going to heaven is going to heaven. Because so many people, Think they're going to heaven because of what they've done for God. What they've done in the name of God. But it's not about what we do, it's about accepting the invitation. It's about having the right wedding clothes on. And those wedding clothes are the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, when Jesus died on the cross and when we humble ourselves and trust Jesus Christ as our savior, Jesus clothes us with the wedding garments. He gives us the clothing of righteousness, of his righteousness. And even though underneath that righteousness we're the same stinking thinking people we were before, God doesn't see our stinking nature God doesn't see our obstinate behavior. He only sees the wedding clothes. He sees the righteousness of Jesus bathing us. And he says, come on in. You're my wedding guest. Come into the kingdom. I have prepared for those before the foundation of the world. The other one, he said, time, bind them, get them out of here. Because you can't get to the kingdom if you don't have the wedding clothes on, and the only wedding clothes God recognizes the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and Jesus ends the whole thing and he says, Many are invited. In fact, scripture says, Everyone's invited, but few are chosen. I think the words could also be said, But few choose. Have you accepted? The invitation. Doesn't matter on what has characterized your lifestyle to this point. Doesn't matter whether you're young, whether you're old. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is, will you accept the invitation? Will, will you accept his invitation for eternal life? John 3:16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever, whoever will what? Believe in him shall never perish but have eternal life. It's not whoever's good, whoever repents. It just says whoever will believe in him. It's an invitation, see? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says... For by grace you're saved, through faith, it's not of yourself, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that anyone can boast. It's an invitation. He says, I want to just give it to you, but will you accept it? Now, most of us here have accepted that gift. So then the question for us today is, have you received his invitation for eternal rewards? See, salvation is our gift from God. It's just a gift of love, John three sixteen. But then God gives us an opportunity to live our lives in such a way that we amass eternal rewards that will impact our eternal experience. See, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 27, for the son of man is going to come. Jesus is coming back. And next time he comes back, he's coming in his father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what is done. Listen, every day when you wake up, God extends to you an invitation to live a life that will yield you eternal treasure, that will yield you eternal rewards, that will yield you eternal opportunities and eternal experiences every day as we swing our legs over the bed. He gives every one of us that opportunity all day long. Well, that's the inside scoop on the coming of the kingdom of God. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's bow our head. Thank you, Jesus, for these amazing parables. God will never look at them and say them again. They weren't just stories that you were trying to illustrate something. God, you were giving us secret. You were giving us the inside scoop about the eternal kingdom of God. And having learned all these things, now it comes down to this. Will we receive your invitation? Or will we be like the religious leaders of Jesus' days who rejected it, even though there was so much evidence that Jesus was that Messiah? God, I pray that if there's a man, woman here today who has never trusted Jesus Christ, that they will receive the invitation that is evident in their life right now because they're here. God, somehow you brought them here so that they could accept your invitation for eternal forgiveness of their sin and eternal life. Every believer who is here today, you have brought here today so that you can once again remind them of the invitation that characterizes our everyday life of preparing our lives for eternal rewards that eye has not seen, that ears have never heard, and that has never entered into the imagination of a heart. They're so glorious. Lord, I pray that every one of us will receive that invitation today. For your glory, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Amen. Listen, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, you've never accepted his invitation for the forgiveness of your sins, don't you leave this campus in that condition. After service, come up and see one of we pastors. We're in these gray checkered shirts today. Or, or you can go out on the patio. When you go out the front doors, turn to your right, and there's a booth that says next steps. Go there and just say to someone at the next steps, with, you know, I, I'm not really sure about my eternal relationship with God. I need to trust Jesus as my Savior, and they'll help you to do that before you leave this campus. Don't you be ashamed. All of us have done it. If you've done that already, say amen. amen. If you're proud that you did that, say amen. amen. See, you've got nothing but supporters here. They would love for you to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. If it's all new to you and you're just not sure, at least pick up one of these books on your way out. Free of charge at the guest services booth at one of our literature racks called You Can Be Sure. And this afternoon, take time before you watch a master's golf tournament and read this little book. And it can change you for all eternity. God loves you. And he will give you chance after chance after chance after chance. But listen, when Jesus comes back, the chances are done. Only one life, so soon it will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last.